He said, I am now convinced beyond a doubt that unless some great and capital change suddenly takes place in that line, this army must inevitably be reduced to one or other of these three things. Starve, dissolve, or disperse. Those words were spoken by George Washington in December of 1777. It was a tough winter. We often think of the Revolutionary War as this great adventure story with a happy ending. But Washington didn't see it that way. He was not sure how the story was going to end. We're fortunate enough to be on the other side of history. 234 years later, we just kind of We just kind of see how it all worked out back then. But Washington just was not sure at all. He wasn't sure what the outcome was going to be. Oh, he knew what the outcome was going to be if we lost. He knew what that would mean. He knew what that meant for him. He knew what that would mean for the Continental Congress, for those who had signed the Declaration of Independence. He wasn't sure. And and even after the war was won, it's interesting how a journalist approached him and and almost you know badgered him with the question, you know, you know, how'd you do it? How'd you do it? How'd you do it? You know, and and, and Washington uh, Washington was too modest. He he modestly concluded, and I love what he says here. Uh, I'm gonna teach you a new word. You get a new word today. All right, Washington modestly concluded, here it is, that victory is due to, I quote, here, victory was due, why did we win? We won due to a concatenation of causes. There it is, a concatenation of causes. Now you have a new word this afternoon while you're enjoying ribs and hamburgers. How are these so good? You just simply say, well, it's due to a concatenation of causes. That's why, you know, oh, oh, okay, uh, pass me the mustard. Um, yeah. <laughs> A series of events, that's how we would put it. A series of events, a a concatenation of causes which had never occurred before nor would likely ever occur again. Um, Bottom line, it was a God thing. (laughs) And, And one of the reasons why Washington said what he said in December of 1777 was because In December of 1777, England possessed the most powerful, efficient machine for waging war in the entire world. And it's not enough that some historians would simplistically say, well, all Washington figured out was that he didn't have to win all the battles, he just needed to outlast the British. And and (laughs) that's simplistic because um, England had practically an indefinite source of time and material to conduct war. And yet here we are. Here we are. And Washington persevered. He contended. And and history tells us that one of the reasons why he contended, why he persevered without pay for eight years and without a day off... For eight years, one of the reasons why he 
persevered and contended was that you know, as the war wore on, he began to see that the vision of the United States was not simply a vision of independence, but rather it was a vision of nationhood. That's what made it worth it. That's what made the war worth contending. This sense of destiny. Destiny, destiny. Washington saw destiny on the horizon, and that's what made the difficulty worth it. And that perspective, that vision, helps me with today's question from the letter of Jude, which is, what's worth contending for? What is it that's there on the horizon that would make the gospel worth fighting for, worth dying for? And if a destiny and a vision would inspire citizens of the United States to endure, how much more than should we, as citizens of a higher kingdom, the kingdom of God? Well, Jude speaks to this when he writes in Jude verses 1 through 4, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So around the year 60 AD, AD 60, Christian communities, house churches, believers meeting in living rooms and family rooms like yours and mine, but outside Israel proper, they began to be infiltrated by by stealthy teachers who attempted to subvert the truth of the gospel, the core truth of the gospel. It was a teaching that was tantamount to a a Jesus-ectomy. They gutted the core elements of the gospel. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ rose again for our sins, according to the scriptures. And they began to replace it, subtly but surely, with, with another gospel, a different gospel, A new and improved gospel, they said. One that did not demand allegiance to Jesus. And instead, one that, that where they wanted the worshipers to make some of their own decisions about how to follow Christ, you know? Think about it. They wanted the church to make the call on how to be the church over and above what Christ, the head of the church, wants. And Jude questions this. He arches his eyebrow. He rattles his saber. He goes on guard because he firmly believes. Now, he's, you know, he grew up with Jesus. So, if, you know, he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Yet, yet he saw the resurrected Lord. And his life, he, didn't, he who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah... Before the death, burial, and resurrection, once he saw the resurrected Christ, it was a done deal for him. And so he calls himself a servant 
of Jesus Christ. Now, when your, when your little brother identifies himself as the servant, I mean, my brother, my little brother loves me, but he would never identify himself as my servant. So, I mean, how can, how can we not trust Jude's testimony? And his testimony is, says that if you take Christ out of Christianity, what's the point? And let me tell you why this matters today. This is so relevant to our situation today. What do you think is the number one religion in America today? The number one religion. What do you think? It's not Christianity. And it's not Islam. And it's not Judaism. And it's not uh, Buddhism or Taoism or the Home Shopping Network. I can tell you that right now. Okay? The number one, the number one religion in America today, according to uh, a sociologist at Notre Dame, Christian Smith, says the primary expression of faith in our country today is what he calls moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. It is a religion that's, that has five pillars. Pillar number one, there is a God who created earth and watches over it. That's pillar number one. Pillar number two, God wants people to play nice. Play nice. Clean your room. Share with your toys. Don't be selfish. Play nice. That's pillar number two. Pillar number three, the purpose of life is to be happy and just feel good about yourself. That's pillar number three. Pillar number four, God really doesn't need to be involved in your life except when there's a problem that... Christian Smith calls it this. God really doesn't need to be involved in your life except when there's a problem that requires celestial performance enhancement. Okay? That's pillar number four. And then pillar number five is we all go to heaven when we die. There we go. Good, good, the, the good people go to heaven when they die. That's that's it, the five pillars of moral therapeutic deism. And, and it, is a, it is a perspective that is more about comfort and individualism and conformity than it is about destiny or calling or sacrifice. And what happens is that when we, when we gut God from his all-creating, all-sustaining, all-defining, all-governing place, by default, there's no other option than to idolize ourselves and to fashion our own form of morality. In other words, when man abandons Christ as the source of what is objectively true and right and beautiful, then the next highest court of appeal is man. And this just makes Jude's blood boil. And so he attacks this. He attacks this with the sword of the gospel. He tells us in these first few verses, this, this opening salvo, he tells us, here's what the gospel is, and here's what the gospel does. And that's what I want us to cover today. Here's what the gospel is. Jude tells us in no uncertain terms that the gospel is the ultimate, most complete, most all-sufficient news we have at telling us all that God has done to bring us home to him. That's what the gospel is. Did you notice how Jude begins in verse 3? He talks about, he uses the phrase, the faith. 
the faith. I've urged you to contend for the faith. Now, now, Jude is not saying that, you know, we ought to believe in belief. We ought to have faith, faith in faith. He's talking about the faith. The faith. And when he uses that word, he's thinking of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the core. When you boil down Christianity to the stain at the bottom of the cup, the coffee cup, that's the faith. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised for our sins on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it. Furthermore, Jude says, it is a faith that... It is a once-for-all faith. Once-for-all faith. Now, our Constitution in our country was drafted by some pretty incredibly intellectually gifted people. I'm saying. I mean, it is a magnificent document. But it's not perfect, is it? It's not. Well, how do you know that? Because how many amendments do we have? This, this is why you have amendments, because the, but, but there are no amendments to the gospel. There, there, there's, this, there's none of this updated, new and improved, 23rd edition. No, there's one, the original, the once for all, given gospel, which the apostle Paul makes very clear. If, listen, if you hear a, if you hear about a new and improved gospel, a newer kind of gospel, Paul says, that's not the gospel. Galatians 1.8 says, if we or an angel from heaven, even if, if it's supernaturally delivered by an angel, if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned, Paul says. Why? Because there's no amendments needed, no updates, no edits. That's it. It's as given, the faith once for all. And then it that phrase, entrusted, some of your versions say given or delivered. In other words, we didn't discover it. Rather, it was given to us. The source is from heaven. Entrusted to us. Given to us by God. We did not make it up. It is making us. To the saints. To the saints. That is, who are the saints? That's Christians. Saint is not a special class of Christians or an elite class of Christians or pretty Christians and everybody else doesn't get the gospel. No. The gospel is given to Christians, to the saints, to all of us. It's entrusted to us. That's what it is. And that's, that's why Jude says that it's the ultimate, most complete, most all-sufficient news we have. It's, it's been delivered once for all. It's, it's been entrusted to us as stewards, to God's people, to the holy ones. That's the, what the word saints means. If you are in Christ, you're a holy one. And so that's what it is. And then Jude, from there, tells us what it does. And, the, and, and he says it's worth fighting for and worth contending for because the gospel tells what God has, has done, is doing, and will do to bring us to his kingdom. You see, what the gospel is doing is, is telling us about the God who has called us in the past. It's telling us about the God who is loving us in the present. And the gospel is about the God who will keep us 
for the future. And that's what's behind verse 2. When when verse 2 says that we've been called, that means someone is doing the calling. God is. He's taking initiative. He is acting. When it talks about us being loved, that means God is the one doing the loving. And, and, and we are kept. God is the one keeping us through Christ. This, this, this triplet called and loved and kept, that's not there by accident, by the way. Because those descriptors, called and loved and kept, are found in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, concerning God's people, Israel, Isaiah 42, 6. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. He's talking about Israel. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And what Jude is trying to tell us is that just as Israel in the past was God's chosen and loved and kept, so now through Christ, the church, Windsor Road Christian Church, we're the new Israel, the church of the living God. God has called us, and he loves us, and he keeps us. Now, to be called means to be invited by God to his banquet table. And I tell you, God has the best table in the restaurant, always. To be called means that God wants fellowship with us. God wants our company. God has a destiny for us. God has a future for us. God has included us in his plans. We're a part of it. To be called means, in Israel's case, that God stepped into Israel's history. God showed up in the life of Abraham and said, I am selecting you to be the the father of a new nation. Abraham was the George Washington of Israel. I am selecting you to be the father of, and through you, all nations will be blessed. I am blessing you in order that you can be a blessing to the entire world. I'm calling you. And when God calls, it's more like a summons. He invites you. Uh, It's really more like a subpoena. You don't decline the call of the Creator. And what Jude is saying is that what was true for Israel then is true for us today. God's chosen us. He names us. We're all looking for identity and reason, right? Jude says, well, that's settled in Christ. I have identified you. I've named you. That's why he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. Not, not, some, not some family kinship, you see. That's not how, that's not how he's going to be recognized by. Jude wants everyone to know I'm his servant. Called and loved and kept. And I want you to know that answers, that these words answer, I think, one of the most important questions that all of us are asking every day. And it's this. Who am I? What does it mean to be a human being? Why am I here? Why, why was I born in America? Why am I in this country? We're wired for those kinds of questions. Because we're wired for a purpose-driven life. And I think that's, I, I think that's what explains the Q&A segment in the Miss America pageant. Right? Right? You know what I mean. The host... The host asked her, if, she, if you were Miss America for a year, what would you like to accomplish during your reign? And, you know, I would like to create world peace, and I want to solve world hunger, and I want to liberate all the caged parakeets in the entire world. We've heard it all. I mean, you know, we hear it on the David Letterman show, and, and, and you know, yet for all of our cynical smiles and sarcastic comments, uh, like, liberating caged parakeets. I mean, this question unveils something that's really radically true about us, that's uniquely true about us. 
It sets us apart from creation. Okay? And that is, why am I here? What's my purpose? I mean, isn't that why people, isn't that why people scale Mount Everest without oxygen tanks? Isn't that why? Huh? I mean, when I was in Kathmandu in February and saw Sundar, Sundar, he'd shake his head. He'd say, people spend six, people from America spend $60,000 to come to Nepal and die. Why do they do that? Why don't they give $60,000 to the Lord and live? What? I couldn't answer him. But isn't that why people do that? Isn't that why people traverse oceans in an all-too-small sailboat? Or they try to fly around the world in a hot air balloon? Or isn't that why we get hooked on politics or sports or myriad of other causes? Why? Because we are contenders. We are created to contend. That's how we're wired. But you know what the problem is? The problem, church family, is that we just kind of tend to contend for that which is merely the size of our own lives. We're not here just for our purposes. We're here for something bigger and broader than the puny borders of our own survival and our own little definition of happiness. We, but too often we settle for a below and less kind of life. And so, and so you get this guy and we'll call him Randy. Who comes home every night, his slumped body, a testament to the depression that grips him. And one day it dawns on him that there's no one who cares if he woke up that morning. No one who cares if he's healthy or sick. No one cares if he's happy or sad. So he thinks to himself, you know, I get up in the morning, I put on great looking clothes. I leave my beautiful modern condominium. I get in my luxury car. I drive to my high paying job only to go back to my beautiful condominium at the end of the day to start all over again. I could die today and nobody would notice or care. I have it all. Why can't I be happy? And the fact of the matter is, Randy had it all, yet in his quest for all, he missed the one thing that separated him from everything else that God had made. Randy had created his own kingdom and had ruled it with discipline and success, but he learned too late that it was an empty kingdom, and he, an empty king. And it's not that we attempt to, it's, you know what, it's not that we attempt too much. That's not it. The tragedy is that we settle for way too little. And then we get exactly what we want, what we shoot for. And you and I are created for more than just filling up our schedules with self-satisfying pursuits of personal pleasure. We were meant to do more than making sure that all of our needs are fulfilled and our desires satisfied. Our problem with the modern pursuit of happiness is that it's left us being self-focused little kings, ruling minuscule little kingdoms with a population of one. That's our problem. And Jude tells us, well, God's, God's called us to so much more. He invites us to be something far greater than our boldest and expansive dream. Through the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus himself has rescued us from our self-built prison. And through the cross, Jesus has cut a hole in that cinder block self-built prison cell. And with his nail-pierced hands, he reaches through and he pulls us out of our self-built prison. And, and we go through that hole in the wall and the 
rough blocks of cinder. It's like a new birth. But when we get out on the other side, it's like, wow. I didn't know that this existed. I didn't, uh, wow. It's like the Pavenzi kids in the Chronicles of Narnia. They go through the wardrobe and, and there's another world, you see. And there is. And the Bible describes that world with one word, glory. And that's our destiny. And that's why Jude concludes in verse 24 to present you before his glorious presence. That's our destiny. The gospel steps in and calls us from the below and less self-built cinder block prison cell to the above and more kingdom of Jesus. I want that. That's why Psalm 138.8 says the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. He will. And of course the question is why would he do this? Why, what, what, what's in it for God? Well that's the second word in this triplet. We've been called. We're loved. God loves you. Well why does he love me? Because he loves you. Yeah but why? Because he loves you. That doesn't say anything about you. It says all about him. God loves us with an above and more kind of love. The Bible simply says God is love, which, which, which does not mean that, you know, God is kind of a loving kind of guy or that, you know, he has love. It means that love is the very essence of who God is. The core of God's character is, is love. And, and a love, the psalmist tells us, a love that endures forever, forever. You know, uh, those of us marriage veterans, we sometimes joke about this this, this love, you know, we say things like, well, the honeymoon's over, <laughs> right? Why do we say that? Why do we, why do we cynically say that? Huh? We say, well, we say that because we're, because we're finite, that's why. You know, we, we say that because we can't sustain a honeymoon level of intensity and affection. We say that because when we have that honeymoon level of intensity and affection, we, 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 we cannot see and we can't foresee the, the, the irritations that come with long-term familiarity. We can't, right? We can't. I mean, we're, we're kind of in the fog of the moment. We can't see what's on the horizon. We can't stay as fit and handsome as we'd like to be, as we were back then. And we cannot come up with enough new things to keep the relationship fresh. So it's, so it's TV dinner and a DVD. That's date night. Right? Theoretically speaking, of course. <laughs> and, and, and we, you know, we, you know we, first we get tired and feel guilty about such thoughts, and then we just get tired. <laughs> but God says that His love for us. You know, his love for his people is like a bridegroom over a bride. And, and when he says it, he's talking about honeymoon intensity and honeymoon pleasures and honeymoon energy and honeymoon enthusiasm and honeymoon excitement and honeymoon enjoyment. And, and see, the thing with God, though, is that with God, the honeymoon never ends, ever ends. 
Because God is not finite. He's infinite and eternal. And he has infinite power and infinite wisdom and infinite creativity and infinite love. And he has no trouble sustaining honeymoon intensity. Furthermore, he can foresee all of our quirks. He knows it ahead of time. And he's chosen, he's decided that he's going to keep what's good for us and he's going to change what isn't. And furthermore, he will always be as splendid and majestic and handsome and beautiful as he's ever been. In fact, I mean, he just, he just is. There's no changing. He doesn't change. And because we are related to him, he will make us more beautiful, more beautiful, more beautiful. Do you, do you know that? Do you get that? I mean, I mean, what's going on in, in, in our lives right now? You know what's going on? Gravity is going on. That's what's going on. And we age, and, and everything just goes down. And then we die. I want a new body. I want the new heavens and the new earth. I, am I alone here? Can I get an amen from the crowd here? Come on. And the beauty of, of the new heavens and the new earth is that Jesus is just going to make us more beautiful and better and better and better. And, and, and he, will, he has infinite creativity to think of new things to do together. So that there's not going to be any boredom over the next trillion eons. I want that, don't you? That all comes from his love. The God who calls us, the God who loves us. And, and you know, when we hear this, there's this temptation to think, okay, yeah, this is just too good to be true. If it's too good to be true, you know, maybe it's not. No, this is truth, Jude says. This is truth that you, can, that you can trust, that you can bank your life on because this truth is about the God who calls us and loves us and then keeps us. He's going to keep us. And, and when we read that word keep and it's used, at, it's beginning in the end of Jude, that has to do with hope. Hope. And let me tell you about hope, by the way. Um, Lieutenant Commander Mike Christian knows about hope. He was a POW at Vietnam. And at first, the POWs, you know, were in uh, solitary confinement. And then uh, later on, he was uh, allowed to mingle with other POWs. And they were allowed to receive packages from their families and updates and letters and so forth. Mike Christian over a period of time, had gathered bits and pieces of uh, cloth from some of the different packages that the POWs had. Uh, he would ask for just little scraps of red and white and uh, blue pieces. And with those scraps, he found, a, and, and found this little bamboo. And he, he fashioned a bamboo needle, and he made an American flag. And he sewed it on the inside of his uh, shirt, which was really nothing more for six years. He basically had nothing. He, he just had, basically would be a pair of pajamas. For six years, that's all he had. One set, six years. And he sewed his flag inside the shirt. And uh, every night in the cell, 30 to 40 POWs, 
Mike would put his shirt there on the wall and they would say together the Pledge of Allegiance. And now the Pledge of Allegiance, is, you know, for us, what is that? I mean, it may not be the most important part of our day, but if you're a POW and you've been in a Vietnam cell for six years, that's the most important part of your day. And this had been going on for some time until one evening the guards interrupted the POWs as they were reciting the pledge. And at that point, they ripped the flag uh, off of that wall and they dragged Mike out of that jail cell and they just beat the pudding out of him. Uh, thrown back in the cell later that night, as they were sleeping on the concrete slabs that they called their beds, there was Mike. Underneath the solitary light bulb hanging from the ceiling, there was Mike. Uh, He was still bloody. His face was swollen beyond recognition. But there was Mike gathering the bits and pieces of cloth together. He was sewing a new flag. See, that's hope. The hope that his country's not going to forget him. The hope that he's going to be kept at some point in time. And it was a hope that would not disappoint him. And when Jude tells us that we are kept, it means that Jesus will not disappoint us. It means that Jesus is not going to change the rules midstream. It means that Jesus is not going to defraud us. It means that Jesus is not going to hold out heaven like a carrot only to whip it away at the last minute due to a technicality. The God who keeps us in verse 2 is the God who in verse 24 keeps us from falling. You cannot be overcome by Satan against your permission. So the question that Jude is asking us then is, is our hope a below and less kind of hope, or is it above and more kind of hope? And how many learn too late at the close of their career, having put money away just before they retire, that the money that they saved is gone or depleted or it's vanished or, or with the economy, and, they, and this question comes again, where's my security? Where's my hope? Where is their hope? Jesus hasn't come in 2,000 years. Has he forgotten about us? What's going on here? And Jude says, no, no. He is keeping you. He will keep you. He He will keep you from falling. He will present you before his glorious presence. Persevere, endure. And the question here that Jude calls us to ask is, is this question for us today? And here it is. It's, where do you tend to say, if I only had, you fill in the blank, my life would be great. Where is that? Where is it? And that's an important question. Because, you know, I do want, I would really like our economy to improve and people to work. And uh, In the News Gazette this morning, uh, Section B, 1, at the bottom of the page, it's a whole article about the immigrants in our community. And at the very bottom, uh, uh, one of the immigrants was speaking of how anxious they're feeling because they had these dreams of, Coming to America, like heaven was going to be, like uh, America was going to be like heaven, and yet then they come here and they are scraping by a living. See, that's dashed hope. And, and what Jude is telling us is that you know, let, we, Jesus has to occupy that blank no matter what, no matter where you live, Jesus, because huh, as much as I love 
our nation, and as much as I love our country, America, American amenities cannot produce mercy, peace, and love. Verse 2. Can't. Can't. There's only one who can, and that's Jesus. And so the acid test of our lives, the acid test of knowing, well, am I lived as one who is called? Am I lived as one who is loved? Am I lived as one who is kept? Well, the acid test is, let me ask this, uh, well, you know, what's your mercy quotient? How deep is the level of mercy in your heart today? Someone said, mercy means that I'm so deeply grateful for the forgiveness of Jesus that I've received from him that I cannot help offering you the same. What's your, what's your quotient of mercy today? Uh, what's your quotient of peace? You have peace today? I didn't ask how much you had in your bank account. I asked you how, how much do you have in your heart account. How much peace do you have in your heart account? And what about love? Hmm? What about love? See, see I, am I drawing... The abundance of peace and mercy and love from Christ? Or am I trying to seek shelter beneath the shade of a bonsai? God has called us beyond our personal bonsai-sized vision to the magnificent redwood forest of his own glory. So where are you today? Where are you standing? Whose call are you heeding? Whose love are you seeking? And whose source of security are you finding refuge in. I tell you, the voices of this world will never stop serenading us, but we can determine whether or not we're going to listen. And listen we must, because God has spoken. Once and for all, he's given us the faith. The faith of a God who calls, who loves, and who keeps. That's the gospel. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so very grateful for your 